Welcome to Mainstreaming Asian Americans. Hi, I'm Father Fred Vergara, Missionary for Asian American Ministries in the Episcopal Church. In this podcast, we move beyond the campaign to stop Asian hate towards full Asian life and living in America. No one wants to be marginalized. The hope is to be included as an integral part of mainstream American church and society. We do this by highlighting the struggles and triumphs of Americans of Asian descent. We also look at the joys of living in America while sharing the essence of cultures of Asian heritage. This podcast promises to be engaging, dynamic, and filled with life-changing perspectives. Join us as we journey together towards mainstreaming Asian Americans. Hi, I am the Reverend Canon Dr. Fred Vergara, Missionary for Asian American Ministries in the Episcopal Church. The title of this sermon is Christ of Faith in Korea. This is first of a series of sermons on Asia-America relations, which is part of my podcast, Mainstreaming Asia America. I will explore the impact of Christian mission in Asia and how it influences the contributions of Asians in America. Introduction. Christianity was and is and always will be a missionary religion. From its beginning in Jerusalem in the first century, Christianity spread to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world as believers obeyed the mandate of their Lord and Master. This mandate called the Great Commission is written in Matthew 28, 18 to 19, where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the ends of the earth. Fired up by missionary zeal and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the early Christians spread far and wide, preaching their faith and establishing basic Christian communities. The Apostle Thomas, once called the Doubting Thomas, due to his initial doubt on the resurrection, was so moved by this post-resurrection mandate that he reached as far as South India and planted the seeds of the church among the South Asians until he was martyred in Madras in 52 AD. The lives of early Christian missionaries were filled with perils and promise, but never a dull moment. They journeyed in unknown lands, struggled to speak and translate the gospel in languages that native peoples can understand, and labored even in hostile territories. Many lived, suffered, and died in the countries they went to. Some were killed and others buried in unmarked graves. But as the saying goes, the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. St. Paul, 
the missionary par excellence who spread the gospel and planted churches in the Greco-Roman world, testified to his life as a missionary in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. St. Paul wrote, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. In my frequent journeys, I have been in danger from rivers and from bandits, in danger from my countrymen and from the Gentiles, in danger in the city and in the countryside, in danger on the sea and among false brothers. Yet in all these trials, St. Paul concluded that God's grace was sufficient for his needs and that he fought the good fight finished the race, confident that he will be awarded the crown of righteousness, not only to him, but to all who believe. Christian Mission in Asia. In the history of Christian Mission in Asia, some of those experiences happened to missionaries, partly due to their zealous witness to the gospel, and partly due to the proclamation of the gospel garbed in Western culture, with some Asian countries despised. As Japanese theologian Kosoki Koyama wrote, Western civilization came to Asia as an ambiguous monster. It carried both guns and ointment, the wounding and healing of native civilizations. Hostility against Western Christian missionary was particularly true in the imperial history of China, which considered them as foreign devils. Chinese nationalists resisted Christianity, fearing it would destroy their culture. One more Christian, one less Chinese, they said. This was also true in the history of the Tokugawa regime of Japan, which unleashed Christian persecution by crucifying 26 men and boys on the mountainside overlooking Nagasaki for being more loyal to Christ than to the Shugenate. The imperial regent, the Yotomi Hideyoshi, was quoted as saying, I do not want this religion, a religion of love and union, which therefore is harmful for this kingdom of Japan. Communist regimes in Asia also considered Christianity as a threat, using the Marxist dictum that religion is an opiate of the people, opium of the people. They pointed to the Philippine colonial experience where Spanish Catholicism came in the form of the cross and the sword, and where the colonialists used Catholicism to subjugate the masses and condition them to be fatalistic rather than for them to struggle to change their destiny. It took over 300 years before Filipinos finally united in revolution to oust the Spanish invaders, to proclaim political independence and to reform Christianity. 
In Korea, particularly in South Korea, Christianity came to be perceived not as an invading or colonizing religion, but as a catalyst for nation building. While it is true that the early Korean history saw resistance to the Christian faith in the persecution of Roman Catholics in the 1870s, the subsequent Protestant missionary enterprise created an optimum environment, not only for the Christian faith to flourish, but for the nation to rise from being an economic aid recipient country to an economic donor country. Korea is now considered the 10th largest in the global economy and a leader in sending Christian, Christian missionaries in the world. The advent of this progressive miracle, if I may say that, started with the signing of the treaty between Korea and the United States in 1882. It was Korea's first treaty with a Western nation, which negotiated protection for shipwrecked sailors, uh, commerce, and a most favored status for the United States. The treaty created a missionary breakthrough as American Protestant mission arrived and built hospitals, schools, and churches, which enabled Christianity to thrive in Korea. Most notable among the early Protestant missionaries to Korea was Presbyterian physician, Dr. Horace Underwood, who published the first Korean English dictionary, established Chuson Christian College, and together with another missionary doctor, who are Ovison, built the first hospital and taught Western medicine in Seoul. 20 years after the signing of the U.S.-Korean Treaty on December 22, 1902, particularly 20 years after 1882, 122 Korean emigrants arrived in Hawaii, which became the forerunners of the steady and open-ended Korean immigration to the United States. Today, it is estimated that there are over 2 million Korean Americans, the fifth largest Asian American subgroup after the Chinese, Filipino, South Asian, and Vietnamese American communities. Now, what are the contributions of Korea to the United States? and to the world. Let me mention three. Minjung theology, economic miracle, and Christian mission. First, Minjung theology. Now, I bet many of my hearers today have not heard about this term, Minjung theology. So let me explain. Minjung theology is a Korean version of liberation theology, 
which became popular in Latin American countries in the 1970s, 1960s and 1970s. It was espoused there mainly by Roman Catholic, Catholic theologians Gustavo Gutierrez, Leonardo Boff, and John Sobrino, and by Brazilian educator Paulo Freire. And their ideas spread in many parts of Asia. And at that time, experimenting and talking about contextual theology, the theology of contextualization, or putting the gospel in the context on which Asia found itself. Now, in the theology of liberation, Christ makes a preferential option to the poor, especially in societies sharply divided between oppressor and oppressed, between the filthy rich and the many, many poor. Now, like liberation theology, Menjong theology is also a preferential option to the poor. It challenges, laments, and prophesies against structures of injustice in society. But unlike the Latin American theologians, Korean liberation theologians do not employ Marxist categories, but uses Korean drama and storytelling that highlight the emotional core of the oppressed, the minjo, and align it with Christ's suffering and resurrection so that the Minjung can rise above their unfortunate conditions. Minjung are people who have suffered oppression and exploitation, extreme poverty and social, political and cultural marginalization throughout the ages. And Koreans term that experience as Han, a kind of inconsolable pain and dehumanization. Tong Etz Moon, one of the Minjung theologians wrote, the term Minjung came to be used during the Yi dynasty between 1392 to 1910, when the common people were oppressed by the Yangban class, the elite class at the time. Every Korean outside of the Yangban elite class was an outcast. It was also used during the Japanese occupation of Korea, 1910 to 1945, when most Koreans were reduced to Minjung status, except for the minority who collaborated with the invaders. During the dictatorship in Korea, Minjung referred to all those who were excluded from the elite who operated in oppression, repression, and suppression of basic human rights. Now, it is interesting to note that Minjung theology became popular in the 1970s when Korea, South Korea, had a succession of two dictatorship regimes under President Park Chung-hee 1961 to 1979, and under General Chun Doo Hwan 
from 1979 to 1988. And it is interesting to note that the two presidents who followed them when democracy was restored in 1988, they were President Kim Yang-sam, who is a Presbyterian, and President Kim Dae-jung, who was a Roman Catholic. They were all proponents and adherents of Minjong theology. They participated in the protest movement of the Minjong during the dictatorship regimes in Korea. So Minjong theology is the first, for me, is the first and most significant contribution of Korea to the world how the Minjung, the masses, the proletariat, if you may, can rise up from their state of being and become included in the main spectrum of decision-making in their societies. The second contribution of Korea is the economic miracle, which I said earlier. I said earlier that Korea is now the 10th largest economy in the world. Its rise from being a recipient of economic aid to that of being an economic donor country is an envy of other neighbors in Asia, especially from the third world, which Korea was once. Now, what makes this economic miracle in Korea? Many Christians in Korea, particularly the evangelicals, Presbyterians, and Pentecostals, attributed this miracle as a byproduct of robust Christianity and the fervency of Koreans in praying for peace and prosperity. Now, I have witnessed and admire the fervency when Koreans pray. They pray early in the morning, like five o'clock at dawn. They pray many times. And in many churches, they even have prayer mountains. The threat of possible communist invasion from North Korea makes them also edgy, alert, and always vigilant to improve their lot. Aided by a rigorous education and highly motivated and well-educated workforce, the economic environment in Korea has spurred the country's high technology boom and rapid economic development. South Korea's manufacturing industry, which has grown remarkable since the the 1960s accounts for 41% of their nation's economy. Korea exports a variety of manufactured goods, including steel, automobiles, ship, ships, chemicals, clothing, TV sets, household appliances, computers, and semiconductors, and many others. The governmental economic policy of an export-oriented industrialization, the strict adherence or rule against graft and corruption, 
the Korean work ethic influenced by the Confucian sense of order and the Protestant work ethics of stewardship and their strong alliance with the United States combined to give Korea the competitive edge in the global market. So second, that was the second contribution of Korea, the economic miracle and maybe a good example to other countries. The third is Christian mission, the advancement of Christian mission in the world. South Korea has seen a dramatic growth of basically Protestant Christianity between 1945 and 2010, moving from 2% of the population to 29.3% of the population. And today I would estimate 33% of the population. Now, 10 of the 11 largest single congregations in the world are in Seoul, Korea. I was privileged to visit and worship at the Yoido Full Gospel Central Church with almost a million members worshiping in its cavernous dome-like auditorium and adjoining buildings. As the Koreans pray aloud in Korean language, as well as in tongues, the huge building reverberated as if there were thousand waterfalls cascading by the walls. The full gospel church, as well as the mega churches of the Pentecostal and Presbyterian churches, have become the mecca of world's churches who wanted to study the principles and practice of church planting and church growth. Even pastors of mega churches in the United States would often visit Korea to learn about their cell group system and the way in which they succeeded in church planting and growing large congregations. Now today it is estimated that 33% of the 52 million population of Korea are Christians, majority being Protestant Christians particularly Presbyterian, Pentecostals, and Methodist churches. Korean Christianity also boasts as the second largest missionary center to foreign countries, next only to the United States. In the year 2000, there were 10,646 South Korean missionaries in 156 countries along with undisclosed number of Roman Catholic missionaries. They were sent on missions, particularly in what is known as the 1040 window nations, meaning those nations that are hostile to Western countries, hostile to English, European, or American missionaries. The Korean missionaries go there. Now, I am an Episcopalian and the Episcopal Church is part of the 80 million Anglicans worldwide. So what can I say about the Anglican Church of Korea? Uh, in 2010, while spending sabbatical weeks in Seoul under the patronage of the Right Reverend Paul Kim, Bishop of Seoul and Primate of the Anglican Church of Korea, I learned that while the Anglican Church had not competed 
with the Presbyterians, Pentecostals, and Methodists in the aspects of church growth. The Anglican Church in Korea has focused on the other wing of mission, that is, social work. Almost all major parishes in the Anglican Diocese of Seoul and the other two dioceses, Daichun and Busan, have a social component aptly called Shalom House that are helping the poor, the migrants, and the marginalized. I'm thankful to Archbishop Paul Kim for having assigned the Reverend Kerry Kim to be my interpreter as I traveled throughout many Anglican churches in Korea. They built schools for the disadvantaged and the handicapped, and many parishes have services for the myriad communities, especially for the disadvantaged. I am particularly impressed by one Anglican priest, the Reverend Columba Jong-Hoo Lee. The Reverend Columba Jong-Hoo Lee was the rector of Jinjo and president of Shalom House. His advocacy for the migrant workers coming from the third world countries earned him the moniker Godfather of the poor Asian migrant workers. I saw him sheltering undocumented workers and pleading for justice and fair wages in courts, as well as in mobilizing his church and the community in helping the poor and the oppressed, even to the point of helping them pay for their hospital bills and referrals for livable jobs. And at some point he went to prison and and all many people, all many money because of his advocacy for the poor. He was such a saint. As a matter of fact, I was so impressed by his work and the works of other Anglican clergy in Korea that I brought some Episcopal Asian American leaders to visit his church when we had our Episcopal Asian American Ministries International Consultation there in 2015. That Episcopal Asian American Consultation which was attended by over 300 people from coming from the United States and other countries. We went to Korea. It was held in Seoul in connection with the 125th anniversary of the Anglican Church of Korea, which as you remember, Anglican Church of Korea was founded in Gangwa Island in November 1, 1889. Conclusion. Let me now conclude this uh, sermon or lecture or talk or story. Cries of faith in Korea with these words. The influence of Christianity and the American ideas in the history of Korea is what Korean Christians bring back to the United States in this period of the 21st century. The Korean-American relations which began in the Treaty of 1882 and the Korean immigration in 1902 must continue as Korean-Americans in the United States find their place in the mainstream American church and society. 
With regards to mission in the 21st century, we must continue to learn from each other and to treat each other as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the same global household of God. We need one another not only to combat the racial hatred and cultural prejudice, but also to minister to the minjong among us, those who are oppressed, excluded, and marginalized in our societies. Both the United States and Korea and the whole world are currently experiencing a decline in Christianity. We need this relationship between Asia and the United States to rekindle Christian mission in the context of our own time. Now, in the past, expert missionaries were sent all over the unknown world, like the Navy SEALs of the United States Armed Forces, rigorous training for the arduous mission. Without these committed missionaries doing Mission Impossible, there would have been no church planting. There would have been no church growth and church expansion. Biblical church planting follows the way modeled by Jesus and imitated by the apostolic church for global disciple making. Go ye unto the whole world, proclaim the gospel, make disciples of all nations. It is a methodology and strategy for bringing in the harvest, raising up leaders and sending some of them to work into the harvest field, cross-cultural missions. Now, this is the general idea behind church planting, and it certainly was in the church of Korea in the beginning. But today, the whole concept of mission has changed. It has changed from the group of elite Christian seals to the whole army of God, the whole people of God. The Episcopal Church, for instance, is waking to the principle and reality that Christian ministry must begin at baptism. And all the baptized, the layers, the people of God has a ministry to perform. Christian mission is no longer entrusted to specialized theologians and expert missionaries, but to the whole church. The Lausanne Covenant defined evangelism today as the proclamation of the whole gospel to the whole person in the whole world by the whole church. Or as South African Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, we are all missionaries or we are nothing. We are all missionaries or we are nothing. The advent of internet technology and social media has also given rise to the term digital evangelists and social media missionaries. We do not have to travel physically to reach the ends of the world, but to navigate the cyberspace and digital 
communication superhighways. With the rapid and open-ended immigration in the United States, the task of Christians, both domestic and new immigrants, both citizens and recent immigrants, is to open the doors of our hearts to receive Christ and to open the doors of our churches to receive those people whom God has placed into our neighborhood. Maybe even the younger generation who have not heard the gospel or who are skeptical about the claims of the gospel. They too are the mission field. Many years ago, a few years ago really, I was in Silicon Valley and we did a research on how many people in Santa Clara County in Silicon Valley go to church. And we realized from our research that there were only 10% of the population who go to church. In other words, at the time of the 1.5 million people of Silicon Valley, the computer, the center of computer industry in the United States, only 10% of that population only go to church. In other words, 90% of the whole population are at church. They are also the new mission fields. If it happened in the early 1900s, American mission boards would send their expert missionaries and mission dollars to evangelize Silicon Valley, if it were in Asia or in Africa in the 60s and 70s. But today, these two are our mission fields. We must learn to open our hearts, to innovate, to invent, and to diversify the way in which we reach peoples in the world today. Open our hearts, open our minds to discern and to listen for God's direction and do the Great Commission in our own time. And in all this, Korean American Christians have much to offer. May God bless our Korean American brothers and sisters in Korea here in the United States and all over the world.